0: Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on Air. On this week's program, we'll talk new, less invasive treatments for urinary tract problems.
1: I thought, what if we developed seeds instead of uh, the roll of tissue? Spray paint, basically, the wound with this kind of graft.
2: We've pushed the envelope in terms of using Botox injection in these children that have a very spastic bladder.
0: Plus, a conservative approach to rotator cuff
3: injuries. And again, all you, and the exam's important because a lot of times you want to roll out frozen shoulder. I mean, you get your imaging study, x-rays, maybe an MRI, and, and, and start figuring out which way do you need to go to, to fix the problem.
0: And new endocrine studies offer new hope. Now we have certain
4: experimental drugs that we can offer if they have a very high risk of developing type
0: 1 diabetes. We'll have all that and a selection from our healing news, and that's all coming up right after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, we examine new endocrine research that holds great promise for improved clinical care of diabetes and more. Plus, oh my aching shoulder, what's causing that pain and what can help? But first, innovations in urologic surgery that are taking place right here in central New York. patients in surgery can lead to safer and more effective treatment for patients. And here to share some of the new innovations and technologies being developed in urology right here in central New York are Dr. Dmitry Nikolovsky. He's assistant professor of urology and the director of reconstructive urology, and Dr. Jonathan Riddle. He's assistant professor of pediatric urology, both from Upstate Medical University. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much for coming in.
1: Thank you for having us here. Good morning.
0: So breakthroughs in surgical interventions, especially surgical reconstructions, can really have a profound effect on the lives of patients. And you've both been involved in pioneering some of these breakthroughs. Dr. Nikolovsky, let me start with you. You're principally working with adults. And I know you've recently done something, a procedure that you developed here, which is a reconstruction for a urethra and I want you to explain exactly what we're talking about, that has been damaged by either an accident or some kind of traumatic event. Explain what that is.
1: Thank you. Uh, I will explain first that uh, as urologists, we deal with uh, with basically tubes uh, connecting the kidneys to the bladder. Uh, the bladder is a bigger tube, and then the, the tube that connects the bladder to the outside world, This is a series of tubes, and you could describe us as human plumbers.
0: The idea here is you're basically we're, um, working on a system that allows us to urinate and to, and to excrete things from our body that are no longer needed, in right. the form, in this case, of urine. Yes, yeah,
1: so it, sometimes uh, uh, accidents, uh, tragedies may happen, and uh, people may develop Complete disconnection of these tubes. In this case, we're talking about the ure- urethra, which is the tube connecting the bladder to the outside world. And uh, you know, some of these uh, traumas and uh, scar tissue is are, are very easy to fix. And in some cases, uh, large pieces of these tubes or urethra could be completely missing uh, as a result of unfortunate accidents. But so- this kind
0: of surgery has been done obviously for many many years. What is new about what you have done in this circumstance?
1: The the option for this uh, terrible, devastating uh, uh, conditions where the whole gigantic pieces of ureter are missing are, are very few. And uh, when I had my first patient presenting with this, uh, I looked o- over what's available in the literature, and uh, the options were pretty horrible. And I, I just couldn't see myself putting my patient through through those options, and uh, and basically, if, if I gave up, patient would be living with a catheter for the rest of his life.
0: So he did basically have a tube to the outside that was not natural. It wasn't his urethra
1: itself. Right, himself. correct. Um, so I, I looked in, into w- uh, what's available, and then I created c- combination of uh, other techniques uh, that made me create this boutique surgery for that particular patient, um, for this uh, patient i had to reconstruct about uh, 4 inches of the missing urethra and for that i had to use uh, tissue from uh, the inside of the, of the mouth the, the lining this, the thin lining of the mouth in combination of the muscle of the leg and it took two stages two trips to the operating room to actually make the missing piece of that Urethra.
0: So you basically took some of the person's leg and some of the lining of their mouth and really made them a brand new urethra.
1: If you say it like this, yes. It, it wasn't like I took a piece of leg. I, I used the muscle that most people don't use unless they're Jean-Claude right. Van Damme. <laughs> uh, uh, other than that, we, we don't really use that muscle for anything. So, so that's
0: that really was a breakthrough and a kind of a pioneering kind of um, procedure. And it, are, is that being done now more regularly?
1: Yeah, I was surprised that uh, another three patients uh, came with exactly the same condition after the first one and uh, so there are four people reconstructed in this uh, manner here and another two in India. Uh, I traveled to my mentor in India and he had a couple of patients that also suffered for years uh, living with catheters and uh, together we put these people back together and they can urinate Normally, now.
0: That's fantastic. So, Dr. Riddle, you, from a pediatric perspective, there are some new things that you've been engaged in. Let me first ask you about some of the newer diagnostic techniques that you're using.
2: Uh, Locally, here in uh, central New York, we're fortunate to have very good prenatal ultrasound, which identifies problems in uh, uh, unborn children uh, prior uh, uh, to them being born, where these problems would usually present with symptoms or damage later on and in our case it's usually the kidneys uh, uh, that are the issue so we're able to identify these problems so that we can either intervene before birth or intervene shortly after birth in order to prevent kidney damage urinary tract infections and other problems that can uh, potentially affect the fetus. So let
0: me get this straight you can actually do something before the baby is born while the fetus is in utero
2: Rarely we do. We can actually put in uh, uh, what we call shunts, which are small tubes which will say a, a bladder is obstructed in utero and it's causing back pressure on the kidney. We can, using ultrasound guidance and a small needle, be able to put in a little tube that will drain the bladder and allow the kidneys to develop more normally
0: that is incredible it is
2: very <laughs> incredible
0: and is this something that is fairly new and new to our area has it spread to other areas or is this being ton- done pretty much on a national basis uh, m-
2: most uh in utero surgery is being done in centers of excellence some of the, the the less involved procedures such as shunts are being done locally with the uh with the help of the upstate uh, obstetrical group dr silverman and, and his group. So uh, this is available locally as well as on a national level, but definitely the technology is being applied here at Upstate.
0: So I guess the other thing that uh, that struck me is that all both of you have been involved in trying to kind of pioneer more minimally invasive technologies so that, you know, for many, many reasons, obviously, um, it helps the patients in so many ways, the healing time, the the danger of infection, all of that. For children, the da Vinci robot is is something that was mostly used for adults. Is it being used for children currently?
2: With the help of uh, our chairman, uh, Dr. Bratislavski, who's a robot pioneer who came to the Syracuse area to bring it to adults, I've been able to apply that same technology to children uh, the da Vinci robot uses s- small incisions less than a quarter inch at times in order to enter the children's usually abdominal cavity and perform precise operations in, in, in to reconstruct as Dr. Nikolovsky pointed out earlier, tubes that may not have developed correctly from birth or tubes that are blocked or tubes that don't work, we're able to do this sort of reconstruction with the da vinci robot rather than large incisions and this is making children that do come to hospital able to go home often the next day Without so, the morbidity of of a long hospital stay or the pain of large incisions,
0: that's amazing. That really is. So, but minimally invasive is kind of a, the the watchword these days. Dr. Nikolovsky, give me an example of another kind of minimally invasive technique you may have done. But before you do that, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with urologist Dr. Dmitry Nikolovsky and Dr. Jonathan Riddle. We're talking about some new advances in reconstructive urology. Go ahead.
1: Thank you. Um, so if you extrapolate the minimally invasive indefinitely and making an incisions ever smaller and smaller, uh, you can imagine that eventually there'll be no incisions. And, and that uh, was my kind of philosophical thought when I, I was thinking, is it possible to create a urethroplasty or plastic operation for the urethra, the tube that connects the bladder to the outside? Is it possible to make it through the urethra itself and,
0: uh, and not to have an open procedure. Not any to have kind. an open
1: procedure. Uh, so we developed here a reconstruction of at least part of the urethra through the urethra itself using camera, uh, and it became an outpatient procedure. Uh, so Instead of hospital stay, even overnight, basically patient wakes up and goes home the same day. And uh, the idea was to deliver this graft, again, from the cheek, like we described, into the urethral incision, through the urethra, secure it safely, and um, uh, because there is no incisions, there's less pain, sooner return home, uh, and uh, no risk of wound complications, because there is no wound.
0: That's pretty pretty dramatic, so that is also a kind of a, a real pioneering kind of effort, because it's a novel way to think about it. Has that taken off beyond uh, your own practice?
1: Yes, I was, uh, I was very happy. This uh, video of this procedure was selected uh, uh, for presentation of, um, at our biggest conference in the United States and won one of the awards. And as soon as it was shown in May, I received uh, tens and by now probably hundreds of messages from around the world saying, hey, I just did one, I just did one, I watched a video, I did one. So in the last three months, I received many messages from uh, Australia, Indonesia, India, um, Argentina, Mexico, people saying, I just did one, just like yours. So I was very happy to hear that.
0: So that really is kind of like an inventor, (laughs) a urologic inventor. (laughs) Dr. Really, you've also been doing some work with vulnerable populations, which is new. Certain types of, tell us about that.
2: One of the areas of of interest I have is in uh, some of the more unfortunate children that have been either born with or developed spinal cord abnormalities. Uh, Children can be born with these in the form of what's called spina bifida, or they can develop uh, uh, similar problems if they have had a motor vehicle accident and develop a spinal cord injury. What is not well known about these, although they have other devastating issues is these children struggle with bowel and bladder continence, and i've been working with uh, um, my colleagues here at upstate and tried to develop minimally invasive ways to treat these children's continents and for that we've been using the da vinci robot for major reconstructions but also we've uh, pushed the envelope in terms of using uh, botox uh, injections which uh, as most people know are used for wrinkles but they'll also uh, are very potent muscle relaxant and we've used them in these children that have a very spastic bladder in order to relax their bladder to accommodate urine in order to obtain control and it's very important to me to treat these vulnerable uh, uh, children because it uh, can really improve their self-esteem
3: the and other th- quality of life and overall. their quality
2: of life overall absolutely and we've also developed uh, some procedures for the bowel here as well. So uh, uh, both bowel and bladder continence are of paramount importance for these young young children.
0: So Botox is not just for wrinkles. Absolutely, <laughs> we've been hearing more and more about the use of Botox even for headaches, migraines, all of that kind of thing. So obviously, this is a very um, another very important. Use of it, and, that, and that's exciting to hear. Um, I don't want to run out of time, but Dr. Nikolovsky, there's one other last thing I wanted you to talk about, and this is this this um, liquid graft. Can you explain what that is and what what you were able to do? Because that's another very novel approach. Uh,
1: again, the philosophical idea is you could you could plant you could plant grass in two different ways. You could roll it as a sod, or you could seed it. So I was thinking, since we're working with grafts these are pieces of tissue, like basically equivalent of SAD, that you could roll on the urethra and we do it for the last probably 30, 40 years. I thought, what if we, uh, again, develop a minimally invasive uh, approach, if we could develop seeds instead of uh, the roll of tissue and just spray paint, basically, the wound uh, with this kind of graft. So we have uh, animal experiments here. Very promising. We just recently published uh, uh, the results, working with more animals to to really fine-tune this idea, and also working with FDA to see if we could uh, try it as a trial in humans, and I I think in some form, this will be the future of reconstruction. Instead of grafts being rolled, maybe grafts being sprayed, uh, and it will will help the reconstruction.
0: Just from my own edification and to try to understand you're saying bits of tissue then are basically sprayed into an area of a wound and they take root so to speak and begin to proliferate and duplicate, is that the idea? Uh, Without
1: too many details, we are still working with two potential um, with two potentials here both bits of tissue and individual cells and we'll see which one which type of uh, sprayable graft is the best graft and and this is just a this is just the beginning of a brand new type of research i, I bet uh, 50 years from now people will be laughing at how we did our little airplane in the bicycle shop that it will be some kind of soup full of uh, graft cells that will be probably taken off the shelf and probably sprayed in 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 patients in large well, quantities. This
0: sounds very futuristic, very exciting, and I'm so glad you both came in and shared some of these really novel innovations in neurologic surgery. My guests have been Dr. Dmitry Nikolovsky, Assistant Professor of Urology and the Director of Reconstructive Urology, and Dr. Jonathan Riddle, Assistant Professor of Pediatric Urology at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Next up, oh my aching shoulder, what's causing that pain and what can help? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen along with you. Shoulder pain is only surpassed by pain in the low back and knee in terms of the most common areas of musculoskeletal pain in the U.S. And the estimates of occurrence for shoulder pain range from 14 to 21 percent. Joining us to help us understand the most common forms of shoulder pain is Dr. L. Ryan Smart. He's an orthopedic surgeon and a member of the Syracuse Orthopedic Specialists and the Upstate Community Campus Orthopedics Group. Welcome, Dr. Smart, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. So shoulder pain, I guess, is pretty common. Explain that to me, I mean, tell us about that.
3: It's, it's incredibly common, I mean, I think it's one of the things that, uh, it's a joint we use every day, you know. Um, I always joke with my patients, it's not a weight-bearing joint. You know, we're not walking, but as far as living life, every move you make from grabbing a cup of coffee to putting dishes away to potentially job activities affects the joint. And, and, and the other thing with the shoulder, it's unique, is the uh, this incredible range of motion. You know, no real joint in the body. of uh, The big joints move like it, so it makes it a little bit vulnerable.
0: And, and, and it's more complex, I guess, too. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about when we think of the shoulder, it's it's not just a single joint. Aren't there several things going on at one time within there are. the anatomy? I mean, there,
3: there are. That's correct. I mean, there's really four main parts of the shoulder joint. There's the main ball and socket. Uh, joint, which is probably what most people think about, and then you have the area where the shoulder blade articulates with your rib cage, because that that shoulder blade is the same bone that's the socket of the shoulder, so that's really part of it. Uh, and then you have your uh, where your collarbone meets your shoulder, which is up taller uh, or up top, <clears throat> that's part of the shoulder. And then you have what's called the subacromial space where the rotator cuff lives, and that's uh, part of the shoulder where a lot of problems develop. So
0: it really is a very complex anatomical makeup. And that's what allows you to do all those kind of complex movements and and wide range of motion. Absolutely. So who would you say in your experience is most at risk for these kinds of uh, joint problems, specifically shoulder problems? Like, I mean, is it... Age-related? Is it gender-related? Is there are there racial uh, predispositions? Are there family history issues, or even profession, as you alluded to earlier?
3: Sure, it's. Uh, I mean, it's it's a lot of it's a lot of profession. I mean, the more miles you put on a shoulder. I mean, it, it, in my practice, the carpenters, the iron workers, um, the welders, anybody that does physical activity with their shoulder, it's just it it, it takes a lot of abuse, and then. You know, the more I practice, the more I'm amazed with genetics, you know, because they'll say, oh, mom, dad had problems. So I think it's just that that combination between the way anatomically your shoulder's made, which is a lot of genetics and there are variabilities from people to people. It's not this the overall design and the bone formation can change and predispose some people to problems. Then you combine that with a a job or an occupation that really stresses the shoulder joint more, that, those are the people that can really get into problems. Does
0: age play any kind of a role? I mean it obviously would in so many other kinds of orthopedic issues in terms of, you know, your Your joints become weaker over time, perhaps, or you thin out some of the cartilage. I mean, so would you find that age does play a role here? Age
3: does play a role. Uh, You know, and again, it's just because as you get older, your tissue isn't as healthy the the vascular the blood supply decreases you know and then some people will will develop a rotator cuff tear and they'll come in and say i've, I've done nothing i don't have any recollection of hurting it and sometimes just you get these attritional age-related tears of tissues just because they're older and uh and that's where age factors in
0: so what he, let's just just an overview statement of the most common kinds of shoulder problems that you see
3: uh, it's somewhat age-dependent, uh, but, but certainly uh, greater than probably age 30, it's all kind of rotator cuff type issues, whether it's rotator cuff, this impingement syndrome we talked about where the, where the rotator cuff tendon impinges against the bone that lives above it, and then that can lead to rotator cuff tears. Um, frozen shoulder is incredibly uh, common, probably one of the most misdiagnosed uh, problems I see.
0: What exactly is that?
3: Frozen shoulder is this nebulous uh, condition where the ligaments around the shoulder, uh, for different reasons, get very inflamed. And it can happen spontaneously or it can happen after a trauma or an injury. and those ligaments get very inflamed and it causes incredible pain, and then uh, you don't want to move the shoulder and then it develops uh, stiffness. Um, so a lot of times, for example, on an MRI, if somebody comes in has a stiff shoulder, get an MRI, the MRI would be normal. Because structurally, the shoulders sound, but it's these ligaments that get inflamed. So that, that's a common one I'll see a, a lot. And it, gets, it, it, it masquerades as other problems. I think that's why it gets missed quite a bit.
0: And uh, you are, did you allude to arthritis as well?
3: Arthritis I is, is is common. It's, it's not as common as the rotator cuff problems. I mean, you know, the, the weight-bearing joints, knees, and, and, and hips get hit harder with arthritis. But it is, I mean, we see it, I mean, in my practice, I see it quite a bit because I do so many shoulders. But in the big scope of things, it's, it's not quite as common as the rotator cuff issues. So
0: let's talk about the rotator cuff. First of all, it seems like an elusive thing. You hear it bandied about, oh, I have a rotator cuff problem or a tear or whatever. Mm-hmm. What exactly is it? Help us kind of visualize what it is and then what goes wrong.
3: Sure, and, and, and I spend a lot of time in the office explaining this because it is such of a nebulous thing, but the rotator cuff is actually a series of four muscles that form four tendons that attach to the ball of the shoulder. And the muscles of the rotator cuff live back on the shoulder blade hence how the joint's somewhat complex coming off different areas but then the tendons come and they attach to the ball and each one of these four tendons does a different job Um, and they are somewhat distinct entities the four tendons but they really work together Um, so so that's what the rotator cuff is it's actually tendons connect the four of them connect the muscles that attach the ball and they're really the steering mechanism for the shoulder so if any of them are injured whether it's inflammation or a tear the whole shoulder steering mechanism gets off and I always Say it's like driving a car without power steering. It's incredibly hard to handle, and you can wreck into more stuff. Mm.
0: So that's that. So what are the causes? You you alluded to the fact that it it could be related to overuse or. Um, Wear and tear. I mean, what usually and you said in some pac- patients, especially who are elderly, perhaps they may get a spontaneous problem with the rotator cuff. But generally, what do you see as the things that cause it? I mean, I've heard it for people who have ten, who are playing a lot of tennis, that kind of thing.
3: Sure, it, it definitely is. I mean, it's probably mostly activity related. I mean, the more. Sp- activities you do that, that are probably shoulder, chest height or shoulder height and above. That's where the rotator cuff is really working hard uh, and can get into problems where if it gets dysfunctional, you get into the impingement. Um, and people that lift a lot of weights, guys that guys or gals that like to lift a lot and, and are heavy, that puts incredible stress because you're con- kind of converting the shoulder into a weight-bearing joint. You make the rotator cuff work harder. So certainly the more use in, in the miles put upon it um, are making it work harder and can stress it.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with orth- orthopedic surgeon Dr. L. Ryan Smart. We're talking about common causes of shoulder problems, and we were just talking about this rotator cuff. So, first of all, what do you do when you see a patient? I mean, how do you, first of all, diagnose the fact that it's a rotator cuff impingement and or tear, and then what do you do?
3: I mean, usually just talking to somebody, listening to the history, I mean, they will tell you just by hearing their complaints when it hurts, exactly what's going on. I mean, rotator cuff issues, uh, uh, you know, tend to be, again, it'll be like a dull toothache pain. A lot of the pain will creep into nighttime. And that's usually when I'll see people. So just listening to them, you can circuit so the handle. history, the history. So the history. Yeah. And then usually the, my exam uh, uh, of the shoulder, the physical exam, will kind of confirm what they've already told me. And, again, I'll, and the exam's important because a lot of times you want to roll out frozen shoulder. If you're very stiff, then you start saying, no, it's probably frozen shoulder versus rotator cuff issue. And then from there, uh, you Pretty much no. I mean you get your imaging study x-rays, maybe an MRI and and, and start figuring out which way do you need to go to, to fix the problem.
0: And then which way do you generally go? I mean are these kinds of things require surgical intervention most often or can they, can there be more conservative treatments for either the frozen shoulder or the or the rotator cuff?
3: Sure, I mean, it kind of depends on the length of time and how long in the person's story, but most of the time these things can get better without surgery, Um, particularly the run of the mill, kind of achy shoulder, say shoulder impingement, where if they're hurting a lot of times it's get rid of the inflammation, which is an anti-inflammatory, sometimes a cortisone shot. And there's a lot of myths about cortisone, but cortisone's really a steroid that acts as an anti-inflammatory. So I'll use it to decrease the inflammation in that area and then uh, physical therapy to kind of get the, the joint mechanics working better. And that can really a lot of times solve the problem.
0: So um, basically what you're saying is most often a lot of these things can be handled conservatively. But when would you have to do surgery?
3: Uh, Usually if somebody... On a shoulder. Yeah, I mean, if somebody comes in with a story where they've had a trauma they've fallen, they have an acute injury, and uh, you get an MRI and it shows an acute rotator cuff tear where the tendon's really torn off the bone. That would be something that you'd say go fix. Or if if somebody's failed what we call conservative measures, it's been months and months and they've done therapy, they've had a shot, they're taken anti-inflammatories and they've just run the the gamut and you get an MRI and it shows maybe some partial tearing or this impingement, then you can go in and kind of take care of the, the impingement problem and make it better.
0: And then following that, obviously, there still needs to be some physical therapy and, you know, some period of rehabilitation that goes along with that as well. Do people generally regain full function of their shoulders following either of these things? I mean,
3: again, it depends on, on the extent of the injury, the length of time it's been going on, the age, all the factors, but most people do amazingly well. I mean, I'd say the vast majority, well in the nineties of my patients, I think most guys that take care of a lot of shoulders have incredibly happy patients. It just takes time. And I spend a lot of my time when we do get to the surgical point of it, telling people how long it's going to take and preparing Preparing them to not have false expectations that I'm going to be better in six weeks because it's a good three to six months, sometimes longer recovery yeah. Yeah. with those problems. But at the end of the day, the vast majority are very happy that, that they did it.
0: Mm. That they, they did which either so or
3: so. You, you, I mean, mostly I'm referring to surgery. Yeah. If you're at that point, you know, you're talking about that because people get scared. You hear horror stories about mm-hmm. shoulder and mm-hmm. rotator cuff surgeries, mm-hmm. and because it's so common, they've almost everybody's had a friend or a relative that's had it. And I just try to, you know, walk them through the process. And if they, you know, get through it and they kind of do what they're supposed to do, they do well.
0: In general, are there? Uh, you, you mentioned that it's not as common to have arthritis, but there is arthritis that does play a role, and there. I think there are several kinds of arthritis that can play a role with the shoulder.
3: Sure. I mean, there's the there's the run-of-the-mill that we, we believe is just wear into arthritis, whether it's knees, hips, and shoulders, kind of age-related. Again, uh, I'll see a lot of arthritis of that variety, again, in, in the carpenters, iron workers. I just think they beat up the joint and, and really created almost a weight-bearing joint because they use it so much. Um, and then that, that's by far probably 90-plus percent of the arthritis that, that you'll see. And then there's a, a, a rare form of arthritis where if the rotator cuff has been torn or bad for a long time, again, it's the steering mechanism for the shoulder. So the shoulder will get out of sync, and it can go bad and get arthritic because of that.
0: In those circumstances with arthritis, again, is conservative treatment generally the treatment of choice, or would you, uh, you know, is surgery ever required in those?
3: It, again, it depends. I mean, if uh, certainly you try to help people with the pain, because most people with arthritis are coming because it hurts. It's just so painful and it's stiff. So it's where, you know, medicine, uh, cortisone shots, therapy can help, but sometimes it can aggravate the joint because the arthritic shoulders want to be stiff. They don't want to be moved as much. And then if it really gets bad and it's interfering with life, and that's kind of when you get that decision, you say, well, should we do a shoulder replacement? And uh, those are some of my happiest patients. You know, when you get rid of that awful arthritic pain and, uh, but if it gets bad enough and really interferes with everyday life, that's when that's an option. So
0: is a shoulder replacement somewhat like a knee replacement in the sense that it's, you have a full, um, artificial joint put in place?
3: Correct. You, uh, you go and you replace the ball of the shoulder and you replace the socket. And that's what you do pretty much in all joint replacements. You replace both sides of the joint and uh, replace it typically with metal and plastic.
0: Mm-hmm. And what's the success rate of those over time?
3: Those do very well. I mean, if you look at the literature, and, and again, most joint replacements 10, 15 years down the road, it's, it's well into the 90s as far as the survival. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly they're not made to last forever. It's just the nature of how we do it. So obviously mm-hmm. you, you'd like to do it in people that are less active and a little bit older so they don't wear them out.
0: Are there new techniques coming out in terms of new procedures as alternative to joint replacements? I know there's been some talk about, you know, for years they talked about certain kinds of, um, you know, pills that you could take, uh, chondroitin and those kinds of things. But then more recently there's been talk about certain kinds of um, basically methods that they could inject techniques for things that they could inject to actually change the way a joint is functioning.
3: Sure. I mean, there, there, are, there are new avenues. I mean, of course, the traditional is cortisone, but that doesn't really change what's going on in the joint, decrease the inflammation. But there are new medicines, not that new, actually, been using it really in knees for a long time, that are joint lubricating called visco supplementation. And there's every company has a different variety. And the molecule in that is called hyaluronic acid, which can help. Uh, but I really think down the road, there's, there's, there's two, two things that are coming one's called platelet rich plasma, and it's where we uh, draw blood from the patient, spin it down and take the, the liquid, the clearer form, get rid of the red cells. And that is a lot of growth factors. I can go into the joint and, and try to combat what's happening from an arthritic standpoint mm. that's showing a lot of promise. Unfortunately, right now it's not covered by insurance. Um, the other one is the, the infamous stem cells where we're, we're starting to realize we can pull stem cells out of people's bone marrow. Inject it into joints and see if it can actually help and, and, and reform and yeah. replenish the cartilage. It's just we're not quite there yet in a really practical come into the office and get this done manner yet as far as I'm but concerned. Research is being done in that yeah. area. This yeah, is great. A, yeah, it's exciting.
0: Thank you so much for coming in and giving us this incredible overview of this whole issue and and it's hopeful to think that both conservative therapy and you know in some cases surgery is needed, but obviously with positive results. I want to thank you so much for sharing it with us. My guest has been Dr. L Ryan Smart. He's an orthopedic surgeon and a member of the Syracuse Orthopedic Specialists and the Upstate Community Campus Orthopedics Group. I'm Linda Cohen and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Up next, new endocrine research that holds great promise for improved clinical care of diabetes and more. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. state's health link on air, Linda Cohen, along with you. Almost 30 million Americans have diabetes, and more than 1.4 million Americans are diagnosed with diabetes every year. Research into this disease is of crucial importance, offering hope to those with this debilitating disease. And here to share with us some of the new efforts in diabetes research taking place right here in central New York is Dr. Ruth Weinstock. She's a distinguished professor of medicine, research professor of neuroscience and physiology, and the division chief of endocrinology, Diabetes and Metabolism at Upstate Medical University and at Upstate's Jocelyn Center. Welcome, Dr. Weinstock. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. So research into diabetes is really important. Just give us an overview as to why that is and, and what kind of is, is on the kind of cutting edge these days?
4: Well, so diabetes is so common and increasing in incidence and prevalence. It's really important to be able to better control the disease, although our ultimate goal is to cure and prevent the disease. And we're fortunate in that there's a lot of very exciting research going on now for both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Here at Upstate, we have over 20 active research protocols, clinical trials related to both forms of diabetes. Um, And so uh, there's a lot of hope that Both the complications may be prevented in the future, and hopefully the disease totally uh, cured in the future. And
0: through the Joslin Center, you're engaged in some of these trials, but the the part— The point is that there are actually national studies in which you are a participant.
4: Yes. So these are really
0: broad-ranging
4: studies. Absolutely. So we have a number of studies that are sponsored by the National Institutes of Health that we do cooperatively with other diabetes centers, um, as well as some of our own research. And we're just very
0: excited about
4: the direction this
0: is going. So today you're you're going to talk to us about some of the new research in type 1 diabetes. And just for our listeners' sake, just quickly explain the difference between type 1 type two? So,
4: type one diabetes is a form of diabetes that is most common onset in childhood, although it can occur at any age. And one misconception is that uh, it concerns adults, and actually, adults can also get type one diabetes at any age. And in type one diabetes, the body destroys its own insulin-producing cells. It's what we call an autoimmune disease. And so you don't have uh, insulin anymore, which is a hormone that you need to keep your blood sugars normal. So people with type 1 diabetes need to take insulin, which has to be given either by injection or an insulin pump. So
0: they're totally dependent on insulin for life, basically. Exactly. And and they can't produce it themselves. Correct. But With type 2, they have some ability to
4: produce insulin. So type 2 diabetes, they have some ability, although they're still deficient in insulin. And over time, actually, individuals with type 2 lose progressively the ability to make insulin. So many of them, after many decades of type 2 diabetes, can have very little insulin production, just like people with type 1. But certainly in the early years of the disease, and for some people for their whole lifetime with the disease, they make enough insulin that it can be controlled
0: with oral medications. And the vast majority of these new patients that I've been talking about really are the type 2. But the type 1, even though it's the smaller number in this country, is growing as well. Absolutely. So type 1 diabetes,
4: unfortunately, is increasing uh, 3 to 5% a year. We don't really understand why that is happening. And it's occurring in children younger and younger, Um, even children one years of age. So it's... um, Uh, It's now, unfortunately, extremely common in both our pediatric population, but also in our adult population.
0: So let's get to some of the studies, because it's very, very exciting. I'm getting excited just thinking about some of these things that you're you're working on. Um, The first study that you brought to us is called the Preventing Early Renal Loss in Diabetes, or the PEARL study. And um, that's being done, I guess, in multiple clinical centers, and you're participating as one. Give us the background. What exactly is it doing? So this is sponsored by the National Institutes
4: of Health, as well as the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. And the problem is that one in three people with type 1 diabetes will have their kidneys affected by diabetes. And in the worst case scenario, it can progress so that the kidneys actually fail and they need either to go on dialysis or a kidney transplant. So our goal is to prevent that. Um, We have done much better in recent years in terms of blood sugar control and blood pressure control and certain drugs to help protect the kidneys, but we're still not where we want to be. There are still people developing renal failure. So the idea of this study is based on laboratory work that has shown that uric acid, uh, which some people may recognize as being elevated in gout, um, but uric acid in high levels, not high enough to cause gout, but even what's considered high normal levels, uh, could be toxic to the kidneys. And reducing that by a drug that is been available in this country for decades, called allopurinol,
0: might be able to further
4: protect the kidneys.
0: So let me just stop you for a moment. So to, so as a layperson, to understand this, basically, in gout, uric acid is out of control or whatever causing the symptoms. And this allopurinol, which has been used to treat it, has been successful in treating gout. But in diabetes, there's also, in, in some pa- patients or in all patients, an elevated uric acid. So it doesn't have, what we're looking
4: at is not even, frankly, elevated. Oh, So there's a, some... a normal range um, that goes from very low to a higher normal range. And there's evidence now that some uric acid levels are considered normal. So they would never cause gout. Um, but they're in the higher end of normal, that reducing that into the lower end of normal could help protect the kidneys. I see. And so that's what we're looking at.
0: And so that study is, is ongoing right now? So
4: that's ongoing. We um, have individuals who uh, are, are using, uh, have been randomized to receive that drug or a placebo, in addition to all the usual treatment that we give for diabetes. And it's a three-year trial, and we hope to then to have an answer and an inexpensive drug to offer people to help preserve their kidney function. That's
0: very exciting. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm Linda Cohen along with endocrinologist Doctor Ruth Weinstock. We're talking about some new research efforts in diabetes that are taking place right here in central New York. Another one is a new type of insulin coming down the pike. Explain that one. Yeah
4: so this is a very novel form of insulin. So when uh If you don't have diabetes, your pancreas, which is an organ in your belly, in your abdomen, makes insulin. And that insulin is secreted and goes into the liver. So the liver sees higher amounts of insulin than uh, the rest of the body. And the liver is very important for your metabolism. When you inject insulin, as you do when you have diabetes, um, your whole body has to see higher levels of insulin in order for enough to get absorbed and get to the liver. Uh, This new insulin targets the liver. So when you inject it under the skin, instead of causing as high insulin levels in your blood vessels and all throughout your body, the liver sees higher levels, as is more physiological, as normally would happen if someone didn't have diabetes, and the rest of the body a little less. And in very preliminary studies in animals, it's shown... That there is less um, high blood sugars, that, and also less very low blood sugars. That metabolism is better controlled. So it's so, a more natural
0: or more physiologic. So it's way a way of delivering,
4: delivering. insulin. Uh. So, um, so we are one of the first centers participating in this multi-center trial. This is also a national trial of, of several centers that um, will be looking at this. So for and this trial, we're enrolling people with type one diabetes who are using injection therapy, not insulin pump therapy with a long-acting insulin, and they will be randomized to receive their usual long-acting insulin, and for the mealtime short-acting insulin, they will get insulin Lyspro, which is Humalog, which is commercially available, or Humalog with this uh, compound that directs it to
0: the liver. So you'll find out if it really is effective or if, if it's more, more eff- effective. Mm-hmm. Yes. Very exciting. So you're looking for people for that study yes. as well. Yes. And in a few minutes, we'll talk about how people can get involved if they want to. Um, so you also have a new study that's looking at the role of family history. Tell us about yeah, that. So this
4: is actually a study that's been going on a long time that's been sponsored by both the National Institutes of Health, the American Diabetes Association, and the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. And it's ongoing in diabetes centers across the country called trial net the idea of this research effort is to actually to prevent type 1 diabetes so we want to find better ways of predicting who will develop type 1 diabetes and the ultimate goal is to develop a vaccine that would then prevent it we're not there yet um, what we're doing in this study is we are taking first-degree relatives of people who have type 1 diabetes for example a sibling of a child with type 1 diabetes who, is perfectly fine. They don't have diabetes, and looking for markers in the blood that indicate that they may be the beginning of destruction of insulin-producing cells. You don't develop diabetes until certain about ninety percent of your insulin-producing cells are gone, or eighty percent, you know, if you're normal body weight. So, um, so we're hoping to be able to identify. So we're learning to better identify people at risk. Um, and that actually has a benefit for the patients because the few that we have identified who are positive, we have followed them more closely, and they never got sick. We, When their blood sugar started going up, we were able to put them on very, very low doses of insulin, oh. and they never had symptoms. They were never sick. So you basically so, could intervene and prevent the
0: development? Is that the Well, idea? no, but
4: we could treat them early. Okay. But there are some trials now to try to prevent the development. So we have some patients now who have certain... Uh, markers and now we have certain experimental drugs that we can offer, if they have a very high risk of developing type one diabetes, uh, based on a, a variety of blood tests that we do, then we can uh, try and see if we can fool the immune system to stop wow. destroying the insulin-producing wow. cells. Hopefully, they'll regenerate on their own and actually prevent or forestall the development. So, um, so for. So that is uh, an effort that is ongoing now. So
0: understanding, I guess, just to underscore, understanding who might be at higher risk is key. Is very important. And so we've
4: come a long way. We do understand that better from our from previous work, and now we're also looking to intervene. So anyone with a first degree relative under the age of forty who uh, with type one diabetes, we can screen them for this for free. and if it, if the screen is positive then they have some additional choices if they want to proceed or not with other testing
0: i don't want to run out of time i want to talk about a little bit of the future and then i want to talk about your perspective on kind of this entire your entire career and the changes that have taken place so quickly I guess in 2017, you're going to start engaging in a very exciting project. Tell us about that. Oh, we're so excited. So this is artificial pancreas. I have to stop you right there. That is amazing, and it sounds like sci-fi. So we
4: are so excited about this. Um, So right now, we have commercially available insulin pumps that are uh, more convenient devices to deliver insulin, but they're still user-dependent in terms of uh, how much insulin Uh, the individual gives themselves. And we have some continuous glucose monitoring devices, uh, glucose sensors, glucose is sugar, that monitors blood sugars periodically every few minutes and can alarm if you're going too high or too low. The goal is for the sensors to talk to the pump in such a way that the patient doesn't have to worry about their diabetes anymore. I'm just taking the patient out of it. So So that becomes automatic. It's all automatic, and it keeps the blood sugars from going too low or too high. Um, And the pumps will have either just insulin in them, or insulin and a hormone called glucagon that works opposite of insulin. So if the blood sugar is going too low, it can give a little bit of that, which your body normally does if you don't have diabetes, and prevent you from going too low. So we want to prevent. Blood sugar is going too low, which we call hypoglycemia, and too high hyperglycemia. And then we think we can prevent the complications of diabetes. So we're extremely excited to be able to be part of, uh, of this um, important trial
0: of this artificial pancreas. And that's going to start in 2017. Yeah. Quickly, how would people get involved in any of these studies? What would they do? So our research unit
4: is uh, area code 315. And we are doing studies with both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. So um, if you're
0: interested, please give us a call. We'll have a link on our website as well. It's incredible. In the very, very few seconds we have left... Can you believe where we've come from when you started in terms of the perspective? Just a quick statement about that. Unbelievable. Going forward we couldn't even
4: monitor blood sugars um, in the blood and didn't have and only had animal insulins to hopefully by the time I require my services will no longer yeah. be needed. <laughs> I mean that's what I hope that the artificial pancreas will be here, a cure will be here, and diabetes will be just of historical interest. That's what we all hope for.
0: Well, thank you so much. It's so exciting to have you here. It's so exciting all the work you're doing and we're so appreciative. Thank you very much. My guest has been Dr. Ruth Weinstock, Distinguished Professor of Medicine, Research, uh, Professor of Neuroscience and Physiology, and the Division Chief of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Metabolism at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
5: Thank you, Linda. Claudia M. Redder teaches at California State University at Channel Islands. Her poem, Mapping the Body, explores how one art form may help a patient post-stroke recover a former art form. Mapping the Body. Remembering can't be forced, But the art teacher says, painting may nudge language and thought. I paint smudges, imagine them as tufts of feathers, because at any time, a word tuft may drift below my line of vision. My access to language was once away to and through the world's daily fusses. Now language itself is the conundrum, a word on the tip of the tongue I am searching for. Like time-lapse photography, The space between words elongates. The word I sought, I no longer desire. The thought itself has slippered off. The quiet spills everywhere, hyphens, ellipsis. I am an erasure poem in progress. We relearn to swing our arms while walking. We keep our balance with head and eyes, ankles and feet our proprio-receptive sensors grounding ourselves in prepositions. Walk sideways through the tunnel, lean over the ball, rock heel to toe, eyes open, eyes closed, teaching me to focus and stop the world from tilting, holding back waves of self-pity since I was forced to step back from the life I was building. Meanwhile, the figures in my checkbook don't add up, Words and numbers do a two-step on the page. We reflect on the frustration of language that once mapped our presence in the world, and now its absence. I muzzle emotion. The art teacher says, we disconnect feeling from thinking. We're told to connect the two through our work. The rhythms of walking might return, and with that, the rhythms of talking.
0: For joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week when we examine an integrative approach to treating diabetes and achieving wellness, plus some inspiring lessons from a missionary nurse. If you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings-on at Upstate, you can find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or check out the What's Up at Upstate blog. That's at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for
5: listening.